welcome to another installment of Visionaries, a podcast that proves you do not have to have great eyesight in order to be a visionary. I am your humble correspondent and host. My name is John Steinberg. Sitting alongside me is my tremendously talented co-host. Santino Maoni, how you guys doing? Ready for another great episode of Visionaries. John, take us off. So as we are accustomed to do here on the program, we'd like to begin each episode with our words to live by. Some wisdom for you to store in your back pocket as you navigate the world and your own challenges as you make the most out of things. This one's from Stephen Hawking. Mr. Hawking said, and I quote, intelligence is the ability to adapt to change. So Santino, when you hear that, what, uh, what does it stir? What does it invoke? What is it? What, what comes to mind? Yeah, well, I've learned, uh, you know, in my short time on this earth, I'm only 19, but I've learned that change is always happening. It's unavoidable. It's inevitable. Just in your life, in, in anything you do, change is going to happen. And that has to be accepted first off. And it's a hard thing to accept. I, I mean, obviously, just it, it can be as so small as just something in your daily schedule changing or something as large as like, you know, yourself, you got diagnosed retinitis pigmentosa and you had to, you know, go through that large change. Change can be, you know, coming in through all different ways. Um, I can go back to the massive change I went through from, you know, transitioning to high school to college and having to, you know, go through that change, all that kind of stuff. But the overarching point I want to make about the quote and kind of what it, you know, again, evoked in me um, is that Hawking is, making the point that since change is always happening, you have no choice but to adapt to those constant changes and to, you know, to, to change how, how, how you approach, how you approach life and how you approach the changes that you're experiencing. And that is the true root of intelligence, being able to adapt to your scenario and change the way that you're doing things and not just try, not just, you know, trying to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, when you're clearly seeing that things are changing, being able to adapt, like he says, that is the true root of intelligence. And it almost makes me think back to times when, again, there have been times where I've had to adapt. I've had to change the way that I've done things. And it really almost does, because I, I think back to the, the, the saying of like doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the same result is the definition of insanity. And I feel like this almost is kind of the opposite of that, where it's intelligent to be able to adapt and not try to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And again, I can go back to times in my life when I've exhibited this and kind of, I guess, almost lived what the quote is trying to say, if that makes sense. Definitely. So Stephen Hawking was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, at the age of 21. At the time, he was on his way to becoming the enormously famous, noted physicist that he was to become but think about that at the age of 21 he was given this earth-shattering diagnosis and he put this quote into practice in his own life and you know what's interesting about Stephen Hawking to me is sometimes there's a tendency to want to treat those that have been impacted by disabilities with kind of kid gloves um but as we love to point out on visionaries, Stephen Hawking, not a perfect person, not by any stretch of the imagination. You don't have to look all that hard on the internet for interesting examples of his colorful personal life. And in considering this quote, 
I think it's important to remember how truly important adaptability is to everyday life. You have an iOS software that needs to be updated on your phone. Well, you install the software and all of a sudden an app is in a different place or a key command does something dissimilar from what you had intended. This is a small example of something that people learn to overcome. They don't allow some differences in an operating software to dictate how they're going to feel about their day and the rest of their life. So there's almost no one that's a better example of this knack for being adaptable than Stephen Hawking. And I wanted that to steer our conversation as we go from words to live by into the next segment on visionaries, which is our hand prints hall of fame. And today we're going to be enshrining a gentleman who knows a thing or two about adaptability, a gentleman who most certainly put Mr. Hawking's quote into practice in his own life. Santino, who are we inducting today? We are inducting, and again, please forgive me if I butcher this guy's last name. It is a little, little difficult. I believe it's Eric Wehenmayer, Wehenmayer, I think something, I don't know if you know how to pronounce it, but. I've, I, I've listened to, uh, well, I've watched a couple documentaries that feature him, um, Wehenmayer. Wehenmayer, okay. So Eric Wehenmayer, he is the first blind person ever to reach the top of Mount Everest. I'm going to repeat that again and for, you know, for the listeners that may have been like, wait, what? the first ever blind man or blind person ever to reach the top of Mount Everest. Let that sink in for a second. There are people that, I'm gonna start by saying this, and again, you can kind of go in more into depth them, but I wanna just make this clear. There are people obviously with, with sight, with you know, no impairments, any kind of impairment in general, they wouldn't even dream of even attempting this. Like I, I did research, and I'm going to be a little bit morbid here, but I did research about, because I know this is a very tasking and it's a grueling climb. And you know, obviously people have died trying to do this. Re- it recorded, I don't know if this is exactly 100% accurate, but what I found was over 300 people have died trying to you know, hike to the top of Mount Everest. And this man was still able to accomplish that. So you can go into more depth about him, but I had to say that just to kind of almost start out by emphasizing how incredible and amazing this feat was. I'm surprised the number is not higher. Yeah, honestly, I 300, was- 300, 300 sounds, sounds a little like bit lower. lower. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not 100%, I'm not gonna 100% say the number was accurate based on what I found on the internet. That is what, I, that's the number I saw. Again, like John said, I thought it might've been a little bit higher, closer maybe to like 500, if not more. But listen, still for him to be able to accomplish this with, with that daunting task ahead of him, Utterly incredible, John. You can go into more depth with him, but yeah, I yeah, have to say that. Absolutely. Uh, so Eric Weymayer, Weymayer, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the pronunciation is somewhat difficult. Um, yeah. In any event, the gentleman was born on September 23rd, 1968. He went to school at Boston College, uh, where he obtained multiple degrees, and he did this while being completely blind. Actually, he lost his eyesight as a young man. The age of 14, he went completely blind by then. Mm -hmm. But did this stop him? Nope, not at all. No. Not only did Eric successfully summit Mount Everest, 
but actually he's been able to summit the seven highest peaks yep. in the world. And before Mount Everest, he, he I believe he, uh, like he, he got to the top of four of them, including Mount Denali. Mm-hmm. So before he even tackled Mount Everest, he had already, like he went into it with experience, yes, but again, the fact that he was even able to accomplish those four before even tackling Mount Everest, again, was incredible, but continue with what you were saying. And in 2014, he led a small, I believe it was him and another individual, he led a kayaking voyage on the white waters of the Grand Canyon. He successfully steered a kayak for 277 miles throughout the white waters in the Grand Canyon, which to me is unthinkable. And I'm sure I'm not the first person to opine and make a statement such as that. But the idea of navigating those treacherous white waters inside the Grand Canyon, it's, it's borderline unthinkable. And yet, this is a man who has done it. Additionally, he is a successful author. He has founded the organization No Boundaries, which is kind of what we preach here, yeah, almost exactly. to a T. Mm-hmm. And he now has a very lucrative career as one of the world's foremost motivational speakers. He's been enlisted by the likes of PepsiCo and Apple and some of the tippy-top Fortune 500 companies to come in and motivate the workforce. He's also got a podcast called No Boundaries, no, No Barriers, excuse me, where the focus is... Again, kind of similar to the topics that we discuss here on Visionaries, but however you choose to evaluate Eric's life, uh, work, and status as someone who has gotten the most with the least, we want to thank him for everything that he has done as we invite him to set his hands down in that dirt outside Grauman's Chinese Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, enshrining Eric Weymayer in our Handprints Hall of Fame. Yeah, I think, I mean, we've had so many people, so many people that we've put into this Handprints Hall of Fame, and you can go, again, from Richard Turner to, like, just all the people that we've put into this, into this Hall of Fame, and now we have somebody like this, Lewis Braille last week, I, I was trying to, I was blanking on his name. We have Lewis Braille, Richard Turner, and now we have Eric Wayne Mayer. And my, my thing is, I want to go to a quote that he said real quick before we close the segment out. And he had said, after he, uh, you know, fully went blind at the age of 14, he had said, I was afraid that I wasn't going to be able to participate in life. That's really, really powerful coming again, just as like from an outsider perspective, you know, somebody who hasn't first firsthand experience, you know, obviously being blind, but to, to get to that point, And again, to think like, Oh, I'm not gonna be able to do just do anything that I wanted to do achieve anything that I wanted to achieve. And then to become more physically active than he was before he went blind, joining wrestling, joining rock climbing, and then, you know, stemming that from a hobby to becoming a full-time adventurer and doing everything he did. I just think like the, the, the story and the path, that he, the journey that he went on to get to the point of where he was to be able to hike Mount Everest was just incredible, unbelievable. And again, I couldn't think 
And I, I say this every week with everybody that we induct, but it's almost like, how can you not with the accomplishments that they, that they, that they've done in their life and what they've been able to achieve? I couldn't think of anybody better to, to induct just because again, I can think of myself, plenty of people. There's plenty of people that have sight that wouldn't even forget, even like that couldn't attempt it. They wouldn't even think twice about even trying to attempt to do what Eric Wayne Mayer did. So again, incredible accomplishments, everything you've done from being a writer to have, having a podcast, everything he's done. Incredible. You are a great inductee for this week's Hanford's Hall of Fame segment. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll and, move. Uh, yeah. I think our next, we're, we're going to be talking to my dad. Yeah. We'll move on to our next thing in Profiles and Courage, where we will be talking to Lee Steinberg, John Steinberg's dad. He's a famous American sports agent. He's been working, the, working in this field for over 40 years. He, you know, had a movie, Jerry Maguire, that was, you know, kind of like a, a real inspiration based on his life. And yeah, so we're going to interview him. Lee, how are you doing today? I'm just doing great. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for being here with us today. John, if you want to start off by well, asking a few questions. Yeah. First of all, I think it's the first <laughs> time and I wasn't sure this would ever happen uh, where I would actually interview my father. <laughs> so that is exciting, dad. Um, so dad, this is a podcast where uh, we profile folks who have overcome obstacles um, and navigated their way through a set of challenges uh, in order to lead successful lives. So some of your biggest hurdles and obstacles as uh, you've gone about your career, some of your biggest kind of challenges that you had to persevere through. Well, John, as you know, I began my career back in 1975 when Steve Bartkowski was the first pick overall in the National Football League draft. And at that point, uh, there really wasn't a field of sports agentry. So in those early years, people could simply hang up the phone and say, we don't deal with agents. And, uh, but we got the largest rookie contract in NFL history. But then I had to figure out how to build a business because I was sitting in my parents' card room. I was my own secretary. Uh, and I figured out that if I could profile a potential athlete and find those that had high character and were self-starters and the rest of it, then I might be really successful. But if I talked randomly to a whole potpourri of athletes, uh, I might be uh, not be able to sign them. So at any rate, I had a fairly charmed life. As you know, our practice is all about role modeling, the concept that a player can retrace his roots to the high school, collegiate, and professional community and set up programs that enhance the quality of life. Um, but then in the uh, early 2000s, I struggled with alcohol. And the first step to coming back is breaking denial to understand that in point of fact that substance is controlling you and you're not controlling it. And then I joined a 12-step program uh, with a unique fellowship and uh, went into sober living. And uh, in about a week or so, I'll be 12 years continuously sober. So if there are people out there who are struggling, confused, despondent over problems that they have with addictive substances, just know there is hope. And the quality that will bring you back always is resilience it's a sense of optimism it's amidst the detritus and destruction can you conceptualize light at the end of the tunnel and see that there'll be a happier day yeah that's that that's honestly incredible to hear again from somebody like like myself who 
looked up to you growing up, you know, watching the movie Jerry Maguire, seeing all the work that you did with some of my favorite athletes like Warren Moon, Patrick Mahomes, et cetera. That's, again, such an inspiring just story to hear and an answer to hear. John, if you had another question you'd like to ask, you can go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Dad, you talked about your practice having its eye on interacting with the community. Um, a lot of the clients, all of the clients that you represent, uh, it's part of their kind of agreement with you to go back into the communities where they grew up. Maybe they want to donate back to the high school that they attended. Um, but if you could uh, just tell us a little bit about kind of the genesis of that and why that was so important to you to, because it was not industry standard at the time at all. And because it's so important to you, um, it's been a real kind of linchpin uh, that your practice has been founded upon. So John, my dad, your grandfather, brought me up with two core values. One is treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was to try to make a meaningful difference in the world and use efforts to help people who couldn't help themselves, to try to be someone who would be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And he used to look at me and he would say, when you're looking for someone to solve a problem and you keep waiting for the amorphous they, and this could be as minor as picking up a piece of trash off the floor, or it could be as major as trying to roll back climate change. And you keep waiting for they or them, older people, political figures to try and uh, uh, be the people who solve the problems. He would look at me and say, you could wait forever. The they is you, son. You are the they. So it imbues you with a sense of responsibility. Um, and so when we ask athletes to go back to the high school community and set up a scholarship fund at the high school or work with the church or a boys and girls club, and then go back to the university community and do what Troy Aikman did, which is endow a full scholarship. And then at the professional level, put together a charitable foundation, which has got the leading business figures, political figures, and community leaders on a board to execute a program. So that can be work done putting their 200th single mother and their family into the first home they'll ever own by making the down payment and having it outfitted uh, by Home Depot. And so it's athletes changing lives. And the second part of it was triggering imitative behavior. So Lennox Lewis, the heavyweight champion of the world in boxing, cut a public service announcement that said, real men don't hit women. And likewise, if you, so this is why we're on the earth, to try to be a good family member. And, and ultimately the judgment will be you know, were you a good son? Were you a good father, a good uh, husband, a good friend to people when they really needed you and it wasn't convenient to be a friend? And then what did you leave of enduring values? So whether it's racism or bullying or uh, the domestic violence or sex trafficking or uh, any massive problem, we can make a difference. So for example, in um, the environment. I put together something called the Sporting Green Alliance, which took sustainable technology and wind, solar, recycling, resurfacing, and water 
to stadium arena and practice fields to drop carbon emissions and energy costs and transform those venues into educational platforms so millions of fans can go to a game and see a waterless urinal and see a solar panel and think about how to integrate that into their own homes and businesses so um, the only thing i i've done i think of any lasting value is stimulate the best ethics and values in young people and help prepare them for second career and then what we did to try to make it a nicer world that's only so i'll transition that almost into my other question out of the 300 professional athletes you've represented throughout your career which one of those i guess would you say was the most inspiring in your opinion well, probably Warren Moon, because uh, the quarterback of the Houston Oilers, and then he played for Minnesota and Seattle and Kansas City. But we started together at a time when there was major doubt within scouting and executive uh, circles, whether an African-American quarterback had the intellectual tools to play that position. And so there weren't very many of them. And so Warren didn't go to the... Uh, NFL, he went straight to the Canadian Football League and he played six years there and dominated. Well, then he came back and he was the first real free agent to come into the NFL. They had no free agency then. And so 12 different teams bid on him and he got the largest um, contract for a veteran in, in NFL history. And then he went on to set up something called the Crescent Moon Foundation that brings kids to uh, young high schoolers to college on his scholarships. And he set up a charitable foundation. Um, and then he went back and retraced his roots. He went to Hamilton High School, which we both attended in West Los Angeles, and then did a variety of things. And, and my greatest honor, probably through all these 48 years is being able to present him at the Hall of Fame in Canton as the first African-American quarterback in the modern era to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And John Steinberg was there to witness. I was, I was, yes. Um, so I think it's important for our audience to, uh, to know that as my father, um, you've done an amazing job with guiding me um, as I have gone from my teenage years into my adult years and dealing with the uh, visual condition, uh, retinitis pigmentosa. So dad, for other parents of you know folks with disabilities or kids that might be having difficulty, troubles, what have you, what would be some of uh, words of wisdom that you would dispense to them? Well, the thing I wouldn't say is I know how you feel because no one can really know how uh, any kind of disability impacts someone. And the catastrophic blow of having one sight taken away at an early time, there's going to be anger and fury and resentment there at the, you know, at the random gods who, who made this happen. Why me? Why me? But at the end of the day, the important thing is not what you can't do. It's what are you still able to do? In other words, you still have life. And, and John, um, I have love and admiration for the fact that, that you've created a bucket list of different activities that 
um, you think would be interesting or exciting, and you still do them. You still go to movies. You still go to concerts. You still go to a variety of sites. So I'm incredibly proud of the fact that as opposed to sitting in some corner, you know, drinking yourself to death or, or being woe me, pity me, you've gone out and got the most you can out of life. So the real question is, what can you still do? What are you capable of doing? And I happen to have a gifted first son who, you know, is a gifted writer and, and uh, doing two podcasts and, uh, and has been more places in the United States and around the world than I have. I, I can definitely say, honestly, from an outsider perspective, too, to touch on what you were saying that, again, what I, from, from first meeting him to now is doing this podcast with, with John, the amount that he's, one of the things that I found crazy was obviously he lived in downtown LA for a few years and we were going to the game at, at you know, now it's the crypto center. Obviously John likes to call it the Staples center. Still we're going to the game. And I, that was my first time kind of walking around downtown LA and you were almost directing me around as opposed to me being able to know where to go. And that was one of the things that kind of struck me that again, like you said, he still manages to be extremely self-sufficient. He hasn't let this, you know, again, obstacle of being blind to take anything away from him. And he still manages to live a fulfilling, successful life, like you said. And I think it's truly inspiring, honestly, what you've been able to do. And again, that's the whole point of the podcast. It's a showcase that you can still do whatever you want to do. And it doesn't have to stop you. Well, thank you so yeah. much, Santino. And and dad, uh, honestly, I, I, I couldn't have asked for more uh, from a parent than what my, my dad has been able to do to do for me, just in, in guidance and in practical advice and just steps to yeah, make the most out of this life, even though I do have this, you know, this, uh, this issue. hundred percent. Definitely. Uh, and, yeah. yeah. One, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, I know John kind of touched upon obstacles that you face in your career and you talked about, obviously soon you're going to be 12 years old where you struggled with alcohol abuse. And I wanted to ask during that time, you know, were there days that you felt like, man, like I can't, like, I don't think I can do this anymore. Like, I don't, I don't know if I can keep going. And how did you kind of keep the mindset of, you know what, I have to keep pushing. I have to keep going through this and eventually I'll get through this. And, you know, again, continue to be performing in my, in, in my career being a sports agent. Um, I had an epiphany at a moment when I was sitting and drinking and I got a sense of proportionality that whatever the problems that I had, and it was never work that threw me over. It was a, a series of reverses in the uh, personal life. It was the fact that I, in grandiosity, thought somehow I had the duty and the responsibility to, to cure John and his brother, Matt, and to protect them from uh, retinitis pigmentosa, I thought as a father, I ought to be able to, to find some way to be more creative, to find some cure, to do something. And I was helpless to do the people I loved most. I was helpless to, to help. And then we, uh, I had a father who died of uh, cancer. It was a long death. And then um, we lost the house, the mold. And I was always fine if I could just get involved in, in, in dealing with the problem, but these things were insurmountable. So, but at the end of the day, it's a sense of proportionality that I was not a starving peasant in Darfur, that um, I'm, you know, not today in the U Ukraine, that uh, 
I don't have the last name Steinberg in Nazi Germany. In other words, people had profound issues. And what right did I have not to live up to my father's admonitions, you know, to be good with family and relationships and, and uh, be a good father. And so, um, but that's where proportionality will save you because when you're in the midst of a depression, you feel like everything's hopeless. Uh, there's there's no light. Fortunately, I had a resilient father who was optimistic. And so if we would walk into a barn filled with pony uh, poop, uh, we were sure somehow there was a pony in there. If just you looked hard enough. And uh, so it's being able to see the light amidst the darkness. It's the ability to be able to see a better place. And you feel at times like... Uh, was it Sophocles who rolled the ball in the Greek fable up the uh, big hill? And then every time you'd push it up a little bit, it would, it would come back. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's understanding that. And it's, it's why there's got to be hope, but also a sense of proportionality. You look at what's happening in the Ukraine today. And, you know, here we are in a free country with a high standard of living. We don't, um, face those challenges so uh, again what is it possible to do and the one thing I learned very on is to never quit in other words no matter how discouraging the situation is life is going to shove you back life is going to to break your dreams life has a tendency to to take the best laid plans and 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 destroy them but after a moment of of uh, reflection, can you bounce back up like the phoenix? Well, that, I know that you are in Hawaii and have made yourself available for us. And I thank you so, so much for, for, for doing this. Um, the next time that I see my father will actually be, I believe, at the rehearsal dinner for my wedding, which is uh, next weekend. And uh, dad, you don't know this as of now, but I'm actually going on my bachelor party weekend. Um, so should be, should be a good time. I should have, uh, some excellent story to share. Already being held. <laughs> yeah. Is this like the nuclear secret? Is this, uh, uh, I, I, uh, you tell me, but you, then you'd have to kill me. <laughs> no, 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 no. Going to death Valley. Um, yeah. So it should, uh, should be a right. lot of fun for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, but again, Dad, thank you so much for, for coming on Visionaries and uh, hanging out with us. Thank you, Lee. Well, thank, thank you, Santino. Thank you, uh, John. John, you know how much I love you, and you are a stirring role model for anyone who's had a challenge or a reverse and found out you know, how to light candles and not curse the darkness. Could have done it without you, Dad. So I love you. And again, thank you for coming on Visionaries. We, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Good, good luck to you both. Thank you, Lee, so much for coming on the show. John, we'll move on to our next. First off, before we move on, how did it feel to be able to interview your dad? Was that was that you know fun experience to have? Well, I've heard him interviewed so many times, yet still, yeah, it was something. Yeah. It was, I never thought that that would happen. Uh, and now that it has, it was great. Yeah. And I am 
thoroughly appreciative of uh, my dad being able to come on the show. But yeah, definitely something that I did not envision ever happening. And we just did it. Yeah, for real. Mo mo most definitely. And again, myself, I would look up to his work all the time as, you know, as a, as a younger kid. Um, I think it was great to be able to interview him again for the second time. I interviewed him once at Radio Row, but to interview him again with you on the podcast was amazing. All right, enough of that. We'll move on to our next segment, rep respect and representation in the media. Uh, John, tell our listeners what we're going to be looking at today, what we'll be analyzing for this segment. So as we like to do here on Visionaries, we take a piece of pop culture and examine how blindness is rendered in that form of media. So last week we examined Anthony Doerr's All the Light We Cannot See, as well as the Audrey Hepburn classic Wait Until Dark. This week I wanted to highlight a piece of pop culture. It's kind of weird when you're referencing a play that was written 140 years ago and you refer to it as pop culture <laughs> yeah. in the same way that you would like The Simple Life with Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie. <laughs> For sure, yeah. But in any case, uh, getting beyond that, we're going to be looking at two products, two creations. Firstly, the 1998 was not a box office hit, was not a sensation, but it is a movie that came on my radar a few years back. And whenever there's a movie with a blind character, I feel an obligation to check it out. So we're first going to be talking about the Val Kilmer, Mira Sorvino. My instinct is to say classic, but it's not really a classic. So we'll just say movie at first sight. Santino, did uh, you get a chance to check out this one? I did, yeah. And the story's kind of just, I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty simple. So in the midst like of a of a vacation, um, Amy Benick, who's played by Mira Servino, she meets a blind massage therapist, uh, Virgil Ad Adamson, played by Val Kilmer, and you know, fascinated by just by him in general, Benick falls for him, and as the relationship deepens. The two of them, they plan to leave, you know, the tiny town that they're in uh, for the, you know, to go to New York City. And that's kind of just the gist of the story. But I was curious what you thought about the movie, how it depicted blindness and really what any thoughts you had on the movie. Sure, so. sure, sure. So Kilmer plays, yeah, Virgil Adamson, who has been dealing with his blindness condition for, for many years. It's mentioned in the film that amongst a couple of things, one of the contributing factors to his vision condition is retinitis pigmentosa. Uh, we've talked about it on here. It's the same eye condition that I have. And in the movie, he begins this relationship with Mira Sorvino. After a while, she takes it upon herself to go looking for some kind of treatment for her new boyfriend's blindness. And she manages to pair him up with a doctor who claims that he can cure his blindness via surgery. He gets the surgery. He's able to see there are a number of hiccups along the way as he has difficulty reconciling his visual memory with his newly instilled ability to see. And yada, 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 so on and so forth. And... Over the course of the film, we see the ups and downs of the relationship. We see Virgil Adamson 
dealing with his newfound sight and then spoiler alert his vision subsides again the treatment out to have been temporary and he ultimately does find love with Mira Sorvino's Amy. A couple things here. First of all, this idea that you could simply have a surgery to correct multiple visual difficulties and then suddenly you would have your vision restored is a little farcical, except that I know this is based off of a real person. It's based off a gentleman named Cheryl Jennings, and his story was actually profiled by Oliver Sacks in his 1995 collection, An Anthropologist on Mars. So I know what actually happened, and this is based off a real story, and I can't escape the idea of going, wow, well, if it were this easy, if anybody who had vision problems could just go and get a surgery, then okay, I don't know that we would have this issue with blindness the way that we do. Putting that aside, let's point out a couple things that the movie does a nifty job of handling. The first of them for me was its depiction of the doctor. When Virgil agrees to the surgery, there's a camera crew inside of the medical clinic. He's not sure who these additional people are. So he asks and the doctor informs him, well, it's a camera crew and and they're here to record your story. The doctor's looking for a testimonial, which I've given multiple times. And this whole digression in the film was pretty spot on. Every time... I've been faced with being a doctor or spiritual healer. There have actually been quite a few folks over the course of time that I've interacted with who have attempted to quote unquote cure uh, my eye disease. We always get to the testimonial. We need it taped. We need it on video. We want to show the world what we were able to do. So this juggling of altruism and commerce uh, is real, real spot on. Definitely in every situation I've been with doctors in this vein, yeah, they will ask me to do a testimonial and talk about the wonderful things that I can do now that I have my vision restored. Just for the record, it's always been temporary. Every type of solution that I've had. Um, Beyond that, the relationship between the two characters And the two characters here, I mean, are Virgil and his sister, Jenny, who kind of watches over him, watches out for him, and tells Amy, the Mira Sorvino character, that she's basically not ready to handle all this. And she really wants to make sure that that, that she's ready for all of this and understands the implications that it will bring on for her life going forward if this relationship is to continue. There is some definite trepidation on behalf of Virgil's sister in simply accepting that he is a gentleman who found someone who wants to take this mission on and wants to be in a relationship with him. So that was that was a particular interest, uh, something that I have definitely experienced and rings true um, in the survey of vision impairments. 
how did you feel about some of the performances here, Santino? How did Val Kilmer do uh, as, a, as a blind character? I thought he did a pretty good job. The one thing I wanted to say, though, about, you know, was something that you mentioned, again, the fact that you could get a surgery to, and again, I know it was kind of based off like, like a, real, a real character and a real person. However, again, just when I was watching it and when I was just doing research after I watched it, I was sitting, I, I'm, again, I'm sitting here thinking like, well, like, isn't that again like really really far-fetched like wouldn't that kind of not again like you said obviously it was a temporary solution but the fact that again a surgery could even just bring back your sight I to me I didn't find that very realistic in terms of the performances again I thought Val Kilmer did a really really good job of portraying a blind character again given that he in, in my opinion most I'm not going to say anybody because obviously we covered Anchorman 2 and that was just a you know debacle yeah not 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 very good at all but i was for the most part most people that we've looked at so far most actors um that have portrayed uh, blind characters so far i feel have done a pretty good job especially because most of the character well most of the actors we've analyzed are not blind themselves and i think you know between the research they obviously for the role and you know the preparation that went into it I think Val Kilmer did do a pretty good job. Not, you know, the best job from people that we looked at. Like, you know, I think Al Pacino so far, in my opinion, everybody we've analyzed did the best job of portraying a blind character. But I think Val Kilmer did do a very good job. But again, the thing about the surgery and how that can like just bring someone's sight back, even again, for a little bit, for a temporary uh, amount of time, I thought that was a little bit far-fetched. And maybe it's just that I've kind of been behind the curtain on this issue. Yeah. But there were multiple times when I wanted the movie to tell me more about this magical surgery. And at every conceivable moment, it feels like I can almost feel the influence of the producer who told the screenwriter, director, the folks making the film, we need to take the science out of this. Listen, all the audience really needs to know is that he's blind and now he's not. And it's because of what the doctor did. If you bog them down with the science and all these medical terms, it's just going to confuse and discourage them. So we can yada yada all of that. <laughs> Except that, I mean, you really kind of can't. You really need to tell us a little bit more than if we clear up the cat. They're telling us basically that we gave a man who cannot see cataract surgery and then he was able to see is what I'm left by virtue of what the film has told us actually happened. And you don't have to be a blind person or know someone who's blind to go, wait a minute, cataract surgery can cure blindness? That doesn't sound right. But that's okay. It's a movie. It's a mainstream movie that was designed to be seen in theaters by a mass audience. You know what this movie does also that I think is worth noting? Yeah. So it's like we begin the show with Visionaries, a podcast that demonstrates you don't need a lot of eyesight to be a visionary, which is modeled after the first quote that we ever studied, the Steve Wynn quote. Mm -hmm. I wasn't born with a lot of eyesight. I was born with a lot of vision. On multiple occasions in At First Sight, they do kind of the inverse of this. For example, there's a scene with Nathan Lane, who is playing, I guess, a visual therapist, which is something I've never heard of. Yeah. And he tells Val Kilmer's Virgil, you may be able to see now, but don't lose sight of what's important. And I'm sorry, it's very corny. Um, it is. Yeah, a little, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, but 
there are a couple of examples like that. Where I'm like, oh, okay, can we just, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. This movie was designed to be shown in theaters, not Lifetime. We can you know, step our game up a little yeah. bit, a little bit here. Um, but there are a number of things that are depicted in the movie that definitely rang true and were not corny in the slightest, a la Val Kilmer runs into like a table or a desk in the living room of, I forget if it's his apartment or Mira Sorvino's apartment. I think it's his apartment. And she has gone about kind of changing up the decor a little bit and putting different pieces of furniture in different places. Mm -hmm. And this makes Val Kilmer run into stuff. And then it gets Mira Sorvino into, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know. And then, Virgil's sister chastises her for you can't move things and you have to keep it all the same as it was and yeah all of that is probably presumable but yet definitely accurate uh and the scenes in which like the first scene where he does where Virgil does go to her apartment and he asks her to kind of explain the basics as to where things are located all of that stuff is real I deal with that on a daily basis type stuff. So amen to the film for getting a number of those things right. And how did you feel about his obsession, Virgil's obsession with hockey? Um, I thought it was just, kind of, it was kind of interesting. Like, I, I liked the fact, obviously, again, as a sports guy, I like that they, that they put sports in there. But again, I thought it was kind of, um, you know, cool to see, again, somebody, despite the fact that they are blind, be, you know, just still having an obsession with sports. And I kind of bring it back, I'll bring it back to like real life, something that we I experienced going to the Clippers game with you, how obviously you're still a huge basketball fan, despite the fact, obviously, that you lost your sight. And something I found kind of cool that you were able to do during the game was, um, you know, you would kind of you kind of get like almost like guess who would be getting subbed in like each time there were substitution, stuff like that. Um, you would like say to me like, oh, like, you know, is this guy coming in this guy? And a lot of the times you were right. And I was like, I'm like, how, I mean, I, I, I get like, I guess like, you know, you can guess and be right sometimes, but I was still like, how is he like getting like a majority of these right almost every time the substitutions are coming in, like in, are happening. And I kind of relate that back to this of being like, you can, you, you still can, you know, whether you like it or you're obsessed with it or you're, it's like you know, one of your favorite things, you can still have a huge, huge interest in sports and still like just have a love for sports, watching, you know, playing, whatever even if you don't have sight. And I think that's kind of what that says in the movie, at least. I don't know if you had any other thoughts on it too, but. Well, with hockey, basketball is of the major American sports. I think the easiest one to handle as someone who can't actually see what's going on on the court. And if you're at a game in particular, first of all, the squeaking of the shoe, there are a number of of sounds that occur during during any basketball game. Definitely. uh, Which kind of clue you into what's going on. So yeah, be they the squeaking on the floor or the ball going the, through the net. Uh-huh. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. The, the way in which a crowd cheers. And if you have a close relationship to a team like I do with the Clippers, yeah, you will know stuff like, uh, yeah, the substitution patterns and what DJ Dents typically plays mm-hmm. during this type of situation. And it's just easier to be a fan of that as opposed to a baseball game. Baseball is very difficult from a blind perspective to, to get into. And hockey, I would think would be one of the more difficult ones, but 
from an outsider perspective, what I want to say about hockey, because again, I'm not a huge hockey fan, but I have watched it because I have a ton of friends that are. And from, a, from an outsider perspective, again, I don't know how a blind person would react to going to a hockey game or seeing it or, you know, being at it. But my, my thing with hockey is how you were describing the sounds on the court, the squeaking of the shoes, the, you know, the sound of the ball going through the net, different stuff like that. If he, if this, you know, this character, people in general, if you're a huge fan of a hockey team, let's throw out the, you know, the, the Rangers, the New York team. I'm from New York. We'll go Rangers. So you're, you're a huge Rangers fan. You're going to the game at hockey games. When, when teams make the goal, usually they have like a blaring sound that happens, like a, an individual one for each team that scores. So you'll be able to differentiate it between that of who's scoring. Also, again, crowd reactions. Plus, you'd be able to hear, and I know, again, this can't really be as indicative, I guess, as uh, the sneakers squeaking on the court. But in terms of just sounds almost to immerse you in the, in the game of hockey, you hear, you know, the, the skates kind of like going back and forth on the ice and, you know, making almost like a sound, like that kind of thing. You have, you know, the, the, the smack of the puck against the stick, stuff like that. Like, I feel like you would still have stuff like that that can almost immerse you in the game again. From an outsider perspective, that's what I think. Again, I can't give you any kind of firsthand knowledge or anything like that. But again, from knowing the game of hockey at that kind of sense, I feel like you could still enjoy, listen, it might be more difficult, yes, but I feel like you could still enjoy the game of hockey despite not being able to see it. That's just my opinion. Certainly worked out for Virgil. <laughs> yeah, big old, big definitely. old New York Rangers fan like you. Maybe you sell him at a game. At maybe, some point. maybe, hundred percent. And uh, so, if you're interested, check out at First Sight. You can rent it on Amazon or wherever you access movies. Segwaying from that to a completely different type of blind character and set of circumstances, we're going to be examining Henrik Ibsen's *The Wild Duck* a play that the Norwegian father of modern realism wrote at the tender age of 56. So in this play, we meet a number of characters with names that are very difficult to pronounce, first of all. I'm kidding. Well, I'm not kidding. They really are. We meet this ensemble as a young 14-year-old girl named Hedwig, is losing her eyesight. Her father comes to understand that he, spoiler alert, he's not actually his daughter's father, that his wife had some type of relationship with his employer long ago. And there are a lot of emotional entanglements going on in The Wild Duck. This is one of Henrik Ibsen's most widely praised uh, plays. And it's during the play's conclusion that things get a bit somber for sure. It was interesting to me that this play is known as a tragic comedy or a black comedy, I guess, which is not something that I would have gathered in just listening to the play being performed at all. The depiction of blindness here. Okay, we have a 14-year-old, we have Hedwig. She is losing her eyesight. We learn that her actual father, he's also losing his eyesight. And as we're told, her father states early on in the play, Hedwig is our greatest joy and greatest sorrow. And when asked to explain what that means, he kind of gets into the blindness stuff and the whole thing is really how her blindness impacts other people. 
And I couldn't help but think, well, don't we want to hear from Hedwig? What about her? Like, okay, yes, it impacts uh, her, her parents and definitely because of what we learn over the course of the play and the true authenticity of her parents, it's the cause of some consternation, but we never really hear from her what it's like and just her perspective on things. It's all kind of seen through the eyes, if you will, of other characters. What do you think about the play? Um, like you said, I thought it was interesting how, again, it was almost like we saw it through the outsider view of everybody else. And we never kind of, we don't get that first person point of view or again, sight per se from Hedwig. And one of the things, again, like obviously, again, I'm, I'm saying spoiler alert at the end of the, at the end of the play, um, Hed, Hedwig, you know, she, she fatally shot herself. And I, again, pronouncing the name, ha, Halmar, ha, uh, Jalmar, I don't know how to exactly how to pronounce it, but her father. Uh, yeah, her father. Yeah, I'll say that. Um, her father, you know, again, is begging, you know, that she lives so that he, you know, might finally show his love for her. And I think at the, you know, ending the play with that kind of towards the end is really, really powerful because it kind of shows, it shows again, his remorse and that he, he feels bad that he almost, I guess, I don't want to say drove her to this point, but the fact that he just kind of cast her aside and wasn't and, and was unwilling to kind of be there for her and just show her okay yeah like I like I love you you're my daughter like you're my daughter like all that kind of stuff he he never really shows that till the end when it gets to that point um but again I think the big thing like you said is that we see it from the outsider perspective in terms of the viewpoint of just the play in general but we never see it from her view from her again air quotes from her sight and from her, you know, for her perspective. But yeah, that was my kind of general thoughts on the play. Right. And I do want to emphasize, it is always important to put things into proper context. So the play was written in, I believe, 1884 by a 56 year old Scandinavian gentleman who I, from all of my research, didn't have any real experience with blindness per se. And last week we talked about Helen Keller and Annie Sullivan, Lewis Braille, and how Lewis Braille was able to receive an education at this wonderful school for the blind in Paris. Well, the reason that, that school was even created was because a gentleman experienced, I'm unclear as to whether it was a parade or some type of event that drew a lot of people out to the street where he witnessed a group of blind young folks who were made to wear dunce caps and were then mocked and ridiculed by passersby. So it is very much in that context that this type of work exists. So perhaps I shouldn't be as judgmental, I guess, on... Ibsen not allowing Hedwig to really have true agency because, hey, look, we're in 1884 and we are far, far from treating everyone on equal footing. And yet I can't help but see the character, the Hedwig character and her impending blindness as something of a literary device in this context because we don't really get a sense of her 
and her own experience, um, we're then left to take observations and how her blindness impacts others as the last will and testament on the subject. And we just need to be giving characters kind of their own agency. Like if this play were written a hundred years after it actually was, for sure, I think that there would have been scenes where Hedwig describes what it's actually like to be 14 on the cusp of turning into an adult and yet at the same time being infantilized because she can't see. But we don't totally know all this because it's kind of sacrificed as there are so many other things going on in the play. So the depiction here is certainly interesting and there's a lot to be admired, but if we were doing it again, we need to hear from her and we need to hear her own experience or the character is really just there as a literary device, thereby allowing other characters to react to her and to it, it I was being gonna, the disease. I was gonna say more of like a plot device rather than yeah. like almost like a, gen a genuine part of the story and like a genuine character throughout the story. Again, like, we, like, like we've said before, you know, in analyzing other, uh, other shows, other movies in general, you know, Anthony Doerr's book uh, last week, the point is, is that when you're representing, at least from what I get from John and just, you know, doing my own research and analyzing these, again, movie shows, whatever we're, whatever we're analyzing each week, what I get from it is that you don't want to just use them, almost just have them just be there just to be there kind of thing. Whereas again, you want them to be a genuine part of the story. You want them to be an influential character and an important character in whatever you're creating, again, whether it be a play, movie, TV show, et cetera. And this didn't really, this play didn't really um, almost capture that essence of really having Hedwig as a main character, as an important character throughout the story. Right. So even though Henrik Ibsen is one of the world's most renowned playwrights, maybe he should have just given Hedwig a scene where she talks a little bit more. I think that would have solved some things here. And then again, spoiler alert with the ending, for it to culminate the way that it does when we haven't necessarily done all the legwork. I don't know, it's a little bit hollow and a little bit devicey to me. Yeah. But that's just my own opinion. And as with everything, I could absolutely <laughs> be wrong. So glad that you uh, got a chance to check out the play. And yeah. Um, so The Wild Duck, it is available wherever you access plays. Uh, Audible.com, it's a great resource for performances. I've been able to listen to actually hundreds of plays. Uh, they're like $5 a piece, and they are full-on cast productions of, sure, Shakespeare, Arthur Miller, my favorite, Wendy Wasserman, Eugene O'Neill, all of the heavy hitters are represented on Audible. So even though they're not giving us money to talk about them, I'll promote them here and check them out for access to some really top-notch performances of classic theater. Definitely. All right, we'll move on to our final segment of the episode. You guessed it, it's Connecting the Dots, where John is going to, once again, regale us Tell us a story about, you know, firsthand experiences he's had in his life, just like he told us about learning uh, how, to, how to read Braille last week. He'll be telling us a little bit of a different story this week. So, John, what do you have for us for this episode tonight? So, I wanted to talk about 
independent travel or as known in the visually impaired community, orientation and mobility. We're sitting, I'm not sure what floor we are, we're on. What floor are we on? We're on floor 21. Okay, so we're yeah. sitting on the, uh, in the 21st floor of not necessarily a skyscraper, but a really tall building in downtown Los Angeles. And I live over 20 miles away from here. So how did I get here? If I literally didn't have somebody drive me to the door, walk me to the door. Well, you have to break everything down by steps. So I first began to understand how to actually travel safely uh, with the aid of an orientation and mobility coordinator. So we start everything with a first step. And the first step in this case was you got to master Apple Maps or Google Maps or whatever map app you have. And we are so fortunate as to be able to do this in 2022. We can only imagine what it was like for folks learning how to safely travel with vision conditions before any of the phone, map, GPS type stuff existed. But you do have to master that first. So it's going to take some time and how your specific app functions. But once you kind of master how that app actually works and how you could respond to it and use it successfully, then you have to get comfortable with the outside world. So for me, when I was a graduate student, I was petrified of traveling off campus by myself. Just didn't feel comfortable, felt as though Every time I were walking in an unfamiliar area that I was just mere moments away from colliding with a car and having things not turn out so great. So it was first understanding and coming to terms with, okay, listen, we're going to need to be comfortable with being outside with walking as cars are going to and fro, being comfortable enough with yourself and with your own abilities to just navigate that. A lot of people, to, to be perfectly honest, there are a plethora of blind people that never graduate beyond that first step. And they are sort of forever consigned to a room or a really small swath of space where they can successfully navigate, but they never are actually able to put it all together go outside the bounds of what they're comfortable with and conquer the outside world. So understand the challenges that are going to be facing you and then break it down by steps. So let's say that we are going from downtown Los Angeles to the San Fernando Valley where I reside. Well, okay. How do, what are some possible outlets for transportation? Well, a lot of people don't know this, but there is a train system in Los Angeles. There is the red line that runs all the way from Union Station to North Hollywood in the San Fernando Valley. And I live on Ventura Boulevard in the western part in Encino. So there's actually a more convenient stop at Universal City, Studio City. So you go from, okay, I live in an apartment on Ventura, and I know that I have to get to Universal City slash Studio City. How do I get there? Look up the bus routes. 
There's a 240 line that will take you all the way down Ventura Boulevard, dropping you off at the train station. Then how do I get from the bus to the escalator that takes you downstairs? Well, like this morning, for example, I wasn't dropped off right in front of it. So I had to use my cane, use my ears, and use my pre-existing knowledge of the train station to be able to ascertain the location of the escalator, okay? You go down the escalator. Now there are three different sets of escalators before you even reach the platform where the train arrives. So each one of them is its own battle. Each step is its own battle, just speaking writ large. So you go from that first escalator using that really nifty white tipped cane, searching around, searching around. And oftentimes, like we've talked about in prior episodes, 75% of people are pretty helpful. And if they see a blind person with their cane, uh, they will kind of ask, hey, what are you looking for? So if worse comes to worse and you truly cannot find the location of that second escalator, then you are pretty safe in waiting until you hear a flurry of people come by and asking them, hey, where's the escalator, guys? Okay, so you've gone down the second escalator and you have followed that group of individuals to the third escalator. You're now on the train platform. And then again, you pretty much have to figure out, do I want to be standing on the right side of the platform or the left side of the platform? The train goes from Universal City to North Hollywood on one end, and it goes to Union Station on the other. So using the announcements that come over the train airwaves, question mark, but through the announcements that you hear, you pair that with pre-existing information and figure out, okay, which train do I need to get on? And really it is utilizing a combination of your GPS maps, your own training with an orientation and mobility instructor. And I cannot emphasize strongly enough that for those listening that want to get more active, want to get out there and be able to experience more, even though they might have difficulty seeing, um, get yourself with an orientation and mobility counselor. These are available at the Braille Institute here in Los Angeles, the Braille Institute in Anaheim, and there are a number of organizations uh, throughout the state of California and indeed the country that offer training with an orientation and mobility counselor so that you can safely do this step by step by step by step. Frustration will come into play. You absolutely will get frustrated, but it's important to remember your overall goal that I am trying to lead an independent life so that I am not consigned to a life led in isolation inside of a room somewhere. I wanna get out, I wanna do things and experience life to the best of my ability. So sacrifice your pride, get together with an orientation and mobility counselor and with them, they will take you step by step by step as you find yourself on the other end of being able to travel independently. It's not all gonna come at once. It's going to take determination and will, but you will be able to do it. Just believe in yourself. John, yeah, that's like 
again, I say it every single time that you tell the story, I, I, I come up with the same kind of point, but every story that is told again, reiterates the overarching point of the podcast and why you wanted to create the podcast is to provide an outlet for people to hear about, again, somebody with firsthand experience showing how you can achieve whatever you want to achieve. It may not be in the way that you want to, may not be in the way that you envision to do it. And it may not even be, it may, it may not be the easiest way that you thought you'd be, you thought you'd be achieving what you want to achieve, but with preparation, with hard work, with patience, with determination, and with the right mindset, you can achieve whatever you want to achieve. And you don't have to, you know, like you said, in one of the, uh, the first episodes we did, you don't have to, you know, kind of rely on other people to, you know, again, travel places to have to drive you everywhere to have to be with you at all times. Like you don't have to rely on that. You can be self-sufficient and do things entirely on your own. If you have that right mindset, have the conviction and have the want to really achieve and do what you want to do. So you're from New York. Yep. You're from Long Island. Yeah. What do you think the most difficult, okay, putting yourself in the shoes of somebody that can't see the site that would be the most difficult to access, um, like the Statue of Liberty or I, the Empire State Building, those are things that come to, I'm not from New York. Yeah, no, I think the Statue of Liberty, honestly, would be probably the most difficult because the Empire State Building, I personally actually have never been, I've been to the Statue of Liberty, never been to the Empire State Building, I know. But the Empire State Building, from what I've heard from my friends that have gone, is that that's a much easier and a much simpler kind of um, endeavor than having to go to the Statue of Liberty because you have to take like a little ferry or a boat to get out the Statue of Liberty, you have to go across water. And then get off and then go to that little separate section. It's like a small kind of, I guess you can call it like an island or piece of land in the middle. And then you go see the Statue of Liberty and then you get back on the boat and you go back. But that, in my opinion, is more taxing and almost, I think it's just more difficult to do than just to go to the um, Empire State Building. Because Empire State Building, you enter the building. And again, this is from what I've heard, never fully experienced it firsthand. But from what I've heard, you kind of just enter the building and you wait in a line and then you go up the elevator and you go up all the way to the top and then you just, you kind of wait up there and then you go back down the elevator. So in my opinion, at least if somebody, if, okay, I'm, and again, John said putting it, putting myself in a blind person's shoes. If I were that person, I would probably, in my opinion, feel that the Empire State Building is easier because it wouldn't require as much, you know, transferring from a boat to another piece of land to back on the boat to back to the, like, the city, having to walk through, I guess, you know, obviously when you get on a ferry, you have to walk through like the main like lobby area where you get your tickets and stuff. So you have to do that. Whereas again, with the Empire State Building, you kind of just walk in, you wait in the line and then you get in the elevator and you're already getting up there. You see what I'm saying? That I feel like that's more, it's, it's easier and it's simpler for somebody that, you know, again, is blind. And if I had to put myself in their shoes, I would probably say the Empire State Building is a little bit easier based on whatever mm -hmm. it is how you do it. But with, with I, you know, I, the Statue of Liberty, Empire State Building, I've actually been to both. And I know firsthand that it really is possible to do um, without being able to see. It just takes legwork, steps, research, and determination. Um, exactly. But it does all start with your own belief in yourself. So no one's going to give you anything in life, nor should they. You have to work for it. You have to really want to do it and uh, do the research, do the legwork. But if you do, the bounds of what you can achieve are seemingly limitless, like those exemplified by 
the gentleman that we enshrined into Hamprint's Hall of Fame this week, Eric uh, Wayenmayer. Yep. Guy climbed Mount Everest. Mount freaking Everest. That, yeah. and that, that's where it's like, again, if he, if he can do that, trust me, it is 100, again, from what John is saying, it is 100% possible that you guys can do the, do the feats that you want to achieve simply. And again, it could be as simple as just wanting to be able to go to the grocery store by yourself, or it can be as simple or, you know, as extravagant again, as wanting to, let's say travel to New York, go, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're from LA, from wherever you're from, if you want to go travel to different places around the, around the country and, you know, go, go visit different sites, you guys can do that hundred percent. But I think that's going to wrap up our fourth episode here of visionaries. John, thank you for closing that out with an amazing story of how you use public transit. Um, and if you have any suggestions, all to all of our listeners, any suggestions, anything you guys just want to say to us, please go follow our Instagram at visionaries underscore podcast. And you can DM us, let us know anything you want to, again, tell us suggestions, comments, concerns, anything you guys want to say, feel free to give us a DM uh, from Santino Mayoni. Uh, we have John Steinberg here and that's going to be it. Yeah. Thank you. So, thank you so much for listening to another episode yeah. of visionaries. We will talk to you guys next week. Thank you guys.